0: Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports, your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.
1: I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Ross Martin, Mike Ingersoll. Last week, podcast got a little heated. Mike talked about fake tough guys, and we kind of rolled with that, so we're going to try to keep that vibe going on this show. I was going to start with Ross, but I, I'd be remiss, Mike, if I don't start with you. And let's talk about your love for Duke University just a little bit. Share what you think about the Blue Devils. It may surprise some people.
2: I mean, listen. That, here, here's what I think about Duke University. Uh, our football rival is North Carolina State, and they always, and Duke always thought that it was a that there was a Carolina-Duke football rivalry. And in the last few years, there was. But when I played, there just there wasn't. And there hadn't been in quite some time. One of the funniest things I ever saw was uh, we were on the field. We are down on the goal line. This is 2009. We're down on the goal line. We're playing at home. We're about to punch it in. And their defensive end, number 90, I can't remember his name. I used to know him pretty well in college. can't remember his name now. Number 90 had his jersey untucked. And on the jersey at the bottom there was a patch that said, Beat Carolina. Underneath the Nike patch and underneath some other type of motivational patch, they had a Beat Carolina patch sewed onto their jersey. And I looked at that, and I tapped Alan Pelk on the arm and said, Alan, Lewis," and I started laughing. And then Alan busted out laughing, and then the whole offense looked over and started laughing, and then the kids started laughing. And he says, hey, man, it wasn't my idea. This is Coach Cutler's idea. This is kind of stupid. And then when I heard that, <laughs> I was like, look, man, these guys, these, these guys are trying – Way too hard to turn this into something it's not. But I mean, I'll give them credit. The program's a lot better than it was, and they've turned it into a rivalry. They obviously beat us last year, and we had the number two pick in the draft at quarterback. So, I mean, the new the new Blue Devils is different than the old Blue Devils. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that ain't that this, this ain't our rivalry game. But and that's kind of how I approach the game. So there you go.
1: Yeah, I, I would. Ross, you and our listeners, I would say buy Ingersoll and Chacos and a couple other guys a beer one day or a lot of beers and sit down and talk about rivalry games such as Duke and NC State especially. It's good stuff to hear. We've done podcasts on it. It probably still could be found in the ether somewhere. But, Ross, let's get serious for a second. Talk about what you learned today from availability at UNC is as Carolina prepares, fights through all these injuries and prepares for Duke on Saturday.
0: Yeah, I mean one thing on the Duke, rivalry real quick. I mean, this is a huge game when you think about the implications for the rest of the season. I mean if UNC loses this game, they're one and three and they're their own one in the in the coastal. So you gotta think about where this game is in the season, the who the competitor is, you know, Duke's what, three and oh with some wins over some power five teams. You know, how good are they? We're not sure because they've they beat a Northwestern team and a really bad Baylor team. They're 3-0, and and they're rolling. And, you know, this could be a kind of a pivotal game in UNC season in terms of, you know, if they win this, they're 2-2, and and they're heading to Georgia Tech, 1-0 in Coastal, and the season looks a little bit different than than 1-3 heading to Georgia Tech and Notre Dame and some other tough matchups. So, I mean, I know I agree with, uh, with Mike that it, it, NC State is the football rival. But what Cutcliffe's done at Duke is, is huge, and they've definitely turned things around. And it, 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 the game definitely means more, and it's definitely something the team can't overlook. But moving to, uh, you know, to what we heard about today at practice on, uh, on Tuesday afternoon, obviously I asked Coach Cap about the offensive line. That's a huge concern because now, you know, Cam Dillard's been out, Bentley Spain's out, and William Sweet's out. I mean, those are your top three linemen, I think, In, entering the season. Those are the three that are most important, your bookend tackles, and your center. And I, I'm not sure what's going on with Sweet. You know, uh, I wasn't at the game up in uh in Virginia, but it doesn't look like he's going to play. So that means you're going to have Charlie Heck, who's played, you know, parts of three games and started one, maybe two games, and then you have maybe Mason Veal, and then some some banged up guards, and Khalil Rogers and and Nick Polino, and then you have your redshirt freshman center and and um JJ McCargo. So I mean, I mean that's where it starts.
2: center. That's yeah, where you I mean, got our new stud center, J.J. McCargo, my man.
0: That's right. And he's performed well. But still, it's a banged-up group. You're not going to have Thomas Jackson. We'll learn a lot more on Thursday. Look for that injury report on Thursday. I've heard from multiple sources the injury report is going to be a crazy injury report with a number of names missing from this game and from guys that could potentially be out for the rest of the season or at least miss a lot of considerable time. And these aren't just you know walk-ons or, or backups. These are starters. And so that's kind of what we're looking at. And also, you know, Chad Surratt he committed to Duke first. And that's going to be a huge storyline everybody's asking about. He had all the TV, TV cameras out. And so it's kind of that storyline. That's what everybody's going to be writing about. I'm going to write about it tomorrow morning. Chad Surratt committed to Duke. He flipped to UNC. He got that dynamic. He's, a, he's the starting quarterback now for the Tar Heels. And that's just an interesting thing to kind of follow uh, heading into this game.
1: Uh, Ross, you still want to take me up on that bet about Marcus McKeithan playing before this season's out? Uh,
0: <laughs> gosh, I don't know. Yeah, you got the question on Twitter about whether this re- this true freshman from South Carolina, Marcus McKeithan, is gonna gonna you know still have his red shirt? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's the depth is slim so now. Gonna, with with May-
2: they're gonna start burning shirts. They're, they're they're gonna have to, and there's just not a there, there's no way they're gonna be able to avoid it at this point. I was hoping that we'd be able to maintain a three tackle. Rotation there, and we'd be okay with that. We talked about that last week, as long as we had three tackles and William Sweet and Charlie Heck could still play, and if Bentley Spain was healthy, we had those three guys were good, and now we we were missing sixty six percent of that equation and and I just don't see I, you know fans might like to hear this you you don't want to hear this you, you don't want you don't want that true freshman coming in and playing. You know, he's not like that kid they got up there at Tennessee that was number one overall recruit in the whole class and he's starting the right guard and that kid's an animal. That kid came into college ready to go. There's a reason McKeithen is in red shirting and that's not a knock on him. He just needs to develop. Most linemen do. I I don't know, but I, I'm I'm gonna tell you what, they keep they keep burning half their roster on the injury on the injury report. They they're gonna have to start burning some kids' redshirts and that's that's good and bad. You know, if you're a kid that wanted a red shirt that sucks. If you want, if you came in and you wanted to play, it's great for you. but
0: Man, you um, got to think about I at mean, yeah. what point do you bring Spain in with that with that right hand injury? I mean, at what point do you just kind of play him with a, with a club on rather than putting out a true freshman? They might get torched man, on the edge there. Man, I mean, that's I, such I, a dicey I, spot.
2: I, that's another That's another thing you got to think about too. I mean, we talked about moving Bentley Spain, maybe putting him at right tackle so you can have that inside trail hand that's not injured since his right hand is the one that's hurt. And his left leg is the one that's hurt. It kind of lends itself to letting him play on the right side more comfortably than the left, from the injury standpoint. But I mean, dude, you 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 might just have to. You, you might just have to put him in there hurt.
1: Mike, I talked to your buddy Checos, and he said, why not put him at right guard? What do you think about that?
2: Well, that's actually not a bad idea because you got help from the center in most pass protection. And frankly, with the stuff that we're doing, we're running a lot of we're running a lot of outside zone and that's, and sweep plays, which is. What's going to have to happen in the game plan now? Coaches know this. I mean, they know what they're doing. When you're this banged up up front and you've got basically band-aids trying to hold back a break in a dam on the offensive line, you're going to have to start getting the ball outside and get it outside quick so you, you don't have to rely on the offensive line to do a whole lot of downhill blocking. Putting Bentley, Bentley Span a guard, not, not necessarily a bad idea because if you, if you, hit, if you hit the ball outside real quick. I mean, how much does he actually have to do at guard, right? I mean, not a whole lot. I mean, he can get he can get beat. He can let his guy go. I mean, on the first level, he can do whatever he wants. Really, what makes him valuable is he's athletic enough to get up on the second level and make a play. So, yeah, if we're running a lot of outside zone plays, a lot of stretches, a lot of sweeps, a lot of jet sweeps, things like that, he's actually pretty valuable as a guard because he can get up on the second level where he can cut guys down and doesn't even need his broke hand, right? So he can be effective in the run game from that standpoint. In the pass, pass protection, he's got help from his center. And if they run full slide protection, he's got help from his guard. So you know, Brian Chagos is, you know, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't let the physical appearance fool you. Okay, but he looks, he he looks rougher and rougher by the day. And and when he listens to this, you know, it, he's losing more and more hair by the day. But he, that's just because he's <laughs> such a smart guy, and his scalp can't contain the. The sheer power and heat coming off of that machine of a brain he has, so his hair just melts away.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I've been saying for years. For me personally, don't be
2: fooled by don't be fooled by Brian Chagos's just terrible appearance. He's a (laughs) smart guy.
1: I'm I'm going to send him the link of this show and then deal with his wrath. I guess (laughs) Saturday at the Carolina Club. (laughs) Ross, did you get a sense? On Tuesday, that of any kind of offensive approach, I know you talked to Chaz Surratt. I mean, is this a game he could sling it all over the field and see what happens?
0: I mean, they're not giving us the offensive game plan, but I think with – and I mean, Mike can speak a little bit more of this, but with a, you know, kind of a banged-up group, you want to get the ball out fast. And that's kind of what they've done the season, the whole season. You know, jet sweeps. You know, short passes on slant routes you know the, those those quick outs they've been doing just get into the playmakers hands getting it kind of in space with with mike michael uh michael carter and jordan brown i think you'll see a lot of that and i think it's huge i mean Chaz has talked about it. every game he feels more comfortable and you're and you're seeing that you know, had a, a good performance against louisville He looked more comfortable against um odu this past weekend and so i think every game is getting better and better i think it's good for unc game plan wise you know you, you lose thomas jackson and you kind of go. I got to go from there with a banged-up line. So, I mean, I don't know exactly how they're going to approach taking on Duke because they have a pretty formidable defense. But um, it should be interesting to, to, to see what happens in Chapel Hill on Saturday.
1: We'll talk more with Jason Staples later in the week about the defensive approach. But I did want to ask you this, Mike. A question on Twitter came in, and I'll go ahead and ask it as he is. I and love get Twitter questions. Yeah, hey, they're good. Bring them on. bring them so let's, let's ask this one and I won't call the name, but you know who you are if you're listening. What will it take for Fedora to ever have a dominant or even just a solid defensive unit? Is it coaching? Is it talent? Do they need better recruiters? Mike, your take on that.
2: Yeah, so for those of you who subscribe to all these podcasts, there's a podcast coming out. Uh, John was our, our MC for that one, and EJ Wilson and myself talked about this a little bit, and I actually asked EJ pretty much the same question before I even saw it on Twitter. The best answer I've got for you is that it starts in the weight room and it starts with the strength and conditioning staff and it's with them the role they play is common sense, right It's toughening guys up in the off season it's turn it's making them mean, and that meanness and toughness will translate on game day. You'll see it on the field on game day uh Jeff Connors was great about this. We talked about this a little bit on that on John's podcast. You'll hear about it. Jeff Connors was fantastic about that. You know, say say what you want about Jeff, uh, there's a reason. At one point, he was the highest-paid strength coach in the country. Guy knew what he was doing. He knew how to get the best out of his players. We were actually able to weed guys out uh, in the weight room. Guys would quit the team because of the workouts, and quit the team because of the weight room environment, because of the weight room atmosphere. We didn't even have to waste our time out getting getting out the practice, and then then weed them out and cutting them loose. They would just weed themselves out just from the workouts, which, you know, that's the kind of stuff you need. That's no, you know, that's 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 no messing around. So it starts in the weight room, creating toughness and creating meanness and playing with aggression and playing with anger and playing with a purpose. That all starts that all that all starts in the off season. It starts in the summer conditioning program and in the winter. As far as recruiting, I mean you can recruit as many four and five star guys as you want. Fans love saying this stuff you know, well, we just need some more four-stars, and we just need some more five-stars, and we need this guy, and we need that guy. Listen, the best coaching staffs can take a two-, three-star guy or a, a guy with no rating, and they can move him to a position he needs to be at. We talked about Bruce Carter uh, recently. I I got, I got had a conversation with somebody on Twitter recently, or on the message boards, actually, from from that area out on the coast, from the Havelock area. Bruce was a quarterback and a safety coming out of high school. He moved an outside linebacker, and he was – on the Buckus watch list for most of his career. Um, Quan Sturdivant, quarterback, right? One of the best linebackers I ever played with. You know, you take, you take guys that were high school linebackers and safeties, you put them on the defensive line as defensive ends, and now you've got defensive ends, right? Sean Drone was a safety coming out of high school, moving to running back. He's still in the NFL. You know, th- that's, that's just what you have to do. Johnny White was a corner coming out of high school. Uh, Kendrick Burney was a receiver you know you you move these guys around and you find their natural position and the best coaching staff know how to take a guy who wasn't that highly rated and coach him up and get get the most out of him and turn him into something he wasn't and again if you listen to the the podcast that we did with John EJ talks about himself and uses himself as the anecdote uses himself as the example Um, guy that came in and wasn't you know he was a two or three star recruit come out of high school and ended up being a leader on the defense and get, got himself drafted by the Seahawks as a defensive lineman, never played D-line in high school. So it starts in the weight room. The, it, it's all about development. It starts in the weight room and the off-season conditioning program. It starts with your strength staff, and then that translates onto the field. And then you take your 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 lesser recruited guys and you turn them into something because you found a diamond in the rough. Again, the best coaching staff can develop those guys that other people didn't really want. So – Fans love saying we need the four star, we need the next Davion, you know, we need you we need you Davion Clowney, need this, need that. No, you don't. You need Robert Quinn, right? You need EJ Wilson. You need uh, Cam Thomas, two-star recruit coming out of high school. That's who you need. That those are the guys you need. You need Bruce Carter, who's playing safety
0: out in Hadlock High School. Let me jump in here. I mean, I think this team, or at least under Fedora, they've had the talent. I mean, you look at what the offensive line was supposed to be. At the beginning of the season, it looked pretty darn good. And I think they have the talent to compete in the Coastal. Injuries, development, you know, people going to draft early has obviously hurt uh, what Fedora can do this season. But, you know, 2015, with a mix of of Butch Jones recruits and and Fedora recruits, they won the Coastal. Last year, they probably should have won 10 games, but they won eight games and obviously had the talent to beat a team like Florida State, which is a top 10, top five recruiting team in the nation every year. They had the talent to beat Miami as well. So I think the talent, you know, is on this roster. Obviously, I think improvements can be made, certain positions. You know, I'd like to see a little more defensive line talent at times and offensive line depth at times. But I think the the, the talent is there. It's just some things recently have kind of hurt the ability to to get those guys on the field. Obviously, there were some issues in wide receiver recruiting. The fact that there's not like a when, – when Bug, Mac, and Ryan left, there was a huge gap in talent. I think it might have had some misses there at certain positions uh, in the sophomore and junior classes and senior classes.
2: Well, I'll tell you one thing too, Ross, and, and and here's a here's a tangential point that I think might actually play more to to answering that Twitter question we just got about whether Fedora can field a a dominant defense. Right? When we were here, some EJ and I talked about both just amongst ourselves and again on the podcast with John. The gist of it is. We have chants and we have nicknames for position groups uh, for for the fan. Offensive line, road hogs. Defensive backs, rude boys. That's the one you see the most of. Defensive line, their pregame chance, D line showtime. The difference between classes that came before us and what it seems like we currently have, and this lends to this pla This plays into what we were talking about last week with the fake tough guy stuff that got so much traction that you know where you know we it got a lot of attention on the message boards and. It got a lot of listens on the, on the podcast, and thank you guys for that. We appreciate that. That kind of stuff, the D-Line Showtime chant, the Rude Boys moniker, that stuff is earned, right? And there's, there's history in some of that. Rude Boys got started back when Dre Bly was here, right, mid-'90s. And it carried on all the way through up until about a couple of years ago. There was an attitude that was passed down. There was a culture that was passed down in that position group year after year class after class all those guys played the same they played with an attitude they were mean they were ball hawks right you had some up years some down years but for the most part you had pretty stable secondary play we've had a drop off in that right but a lot of the current players from the last few years and going into this year and moving forward right they love the rude boys title they love the rude boys nickname they put it on their they make their twitter banner and they make they, they're they constantly shouting it, and they that's how they identify him. And the problem is with that, with the defensive line doing the D-line showtime chant that John Blake brought, right, with him, that uh, EJ's class adopted once they earned it. The problem with those uh, rallying cries and with those nicknames and stuff for your position group is that you got to earn them. And these guys, I mean, I'm just going to call it like it is. They haven't earned. And this is what we were talking about last week. They have – they, they do more talking than producing, right? And they want to fly under the banner of those of those position group nicknames and those, those rallying cry war chants, pregame chants and stuff that we have as position groups that we take pride in that have been passed along from class to class. They want to play under that, but they don't want to do the things necessary to earn it, right? You've got to earn that stuff. And you earn it through the way you play. And until then – I don't know how Fedora wants to implement this, if they ever want to do. I don't know if they take it as seriously as we did, which in itself is a problem, okay, if they don't. But at some point you shouldn't be allowed to, to use those chants, and you shouldn't be allowed to use those nicknames until you play to the level required, to the level that is commanded of those nicknames and those chants, right, and those, those, those personas, because that's really what those position groups entail, They're personas. And the one example that I, that, I, that I use on John's podcast is the running back okay, that group, okay, dog pound, that group, you saw it with starting right around 07, 08, okay, you saw Sean Drone got moved over from safety and there was a new attitude amongst the running backs, okay, they had Sean, you had Johnny White, we got Ryan Houston in here, we got some size, they were mean, all right, got, they, they, they ran hard, they might not have ran for 100 yards every game, but they ran hard and they punished people, right, and then A.J. Blue got here, and A.J. Blue changed that position group. A.J. Blue was a guy who just ran his he, – he, he ran with a purpose, right? And we saw who he was. We knew where he came from. He, he had a – and I'm talking where he came from in his life. He had a ton of respect in the locker room. And no matter how old he was, he, whenever he stood up and he spoke, we listened. Whether well, he was a freshman, sophomore, we listened to that guy. We saw him get hurt. We saw him come back, be productive, right? That attitude the AJ had, has since spread through the running back group, okay, and it really, that's where you saw the turn in that position group, and you see them earning the Dog Pound name, right, the position group nickname, they earned that, right, and they've got respect on the team, it went through with, when AJ got here, it then got passed down, you saw the attitude with the way Geo ran, and you saw it with the way TJ Logan ran, and Elijah Hood ran, and now you're seeing it with with Jordan Brown and this Michael Carter kid, right? You're seeing, you're seeing that, and I promise you that's going to continue to get passed down, and they're going to continue to run that way. That position group is going to continue to perform that way because A.J. is still in the program, right? Fans who don't know, he works. He's, he's one of our strength and conditioning coaches, right? These are things that you have to earn, right? Players in those position groups got to hold each other accountable. And on defense, you don't get to, you don't get to call yourself a rude boy. You don't get to do the D-line Showtime chant if you're not getting any damn pass pressure, okay? You, you, don't get, you just don't get to do it. And at some point, someone's got to walk into those meeting rooms and just pull that from them until they can earn it back. Maybe that's a little over the top. Maybe that's a little too rah-rah. I mean, I don't know. But that's, I'll tell you what, we respected the older guys when I was there. We looked up to those guys, the guys that had come through the program before us, and we wanted to make sure that we played in such a way that respected them and paid homage to them. And we didn't want to let those guys down. Brian Chacos was always around the program, and I always looked up to Brian. I give him a hard time on his podcast, but I still look up to Brian. He was when I was a freshman. He was the one older guy that took me under his wing and showed me around. And I always felt like I owed it to him, and to Scott Lenahan, and to, the, and to Ben Lenning, to those guys that, that that were there when I came in. I owed it to them to play hard and to play well. And if I didn't, then I wasn't just answering to myself. I wasn't just answering to my coaches. I was answering to the people who came before me. And I think these guys have lost that. And if you can hear it in my voice, it pisses me off. And if any of these guys listen to this, it pisses off a lot of the alumni. It pisses off guys like EJ. It pisses off guys like Deontay Williams. It pisses off, I mean, it pisses off a lot of people, okay, who paved the way for you guys to be able to use those nicknames, to be able to play under that, under, under with, with, to play it to play under those banners to be able to use those chants and to try and build off of something that we, 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 we at least feel like we created or we laid a foundation for something good for the future. And frankly, I mean, I'll call it like it is. I don't care about injuries. You guys are letting us down. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's just how it is. That's, that's, that's just real.
1: One of the, uh, a less clean version of what Mike just talked about for our listeners. If you've never listened to Mike Leach and that speech he gave, I forget which game it was, but you can YouTube it. And I don't know if you guys, Ross or Mike have heard it. You ought to check it out. He talks about what before, what you thought you did before, what happened last year doesn't matter. You got to earn it each and every time. It was good stuff. I would give that speech every day. Maybe with a little less language, but Mike Leach, YouTube it. It's worth watching. Ross, let me ask you this, and Mike, I want your take as well. Is this a game, and Buck Sanders gets on me all the time about it's a must win, it's a must win, but let's be realistic. Duke on Saturday in Keenan Stadium, we've already talked about win, and it's two and two, one and oh in the coastal going to Georgia Tech. Lose, it's one and three. And it's sliding south. How important is this game? How important is beating Duke for this program and for Larry Fedora, Ross? In your opinion?
0: All right. Well, I mean, for this season, I think. It, I mean, it's, I think it's obviously the biggest game on the schedule right now, and I think for the season, it's a lot bigger than than say Georgia Tech or or Virginia or Virginia Tech because because of what I said before. You know, two and two versus one and three, but also think about the crowd. They lose to Duke at home. That's 0-3 at home against uh, – 0-3 at home to start the season. You know, Notre Dame's going to have a crowd. But then you got, you know, Virginia. That's gonna be, you know, not going to be a good crowd for that. You have uh, – and then you have, what, Western Carolina at home? Those are the – there's going to be three home games left. Am I missing something?
1: You got Miami.
0: Um, Miami at home, yeah. So, I mean, if they're sitting at 1-3, at and three, you know, likely going to lose to Georgia Tech. I mean, I don't think – I think I'm not crazy in saying that you got Notre Dame at home and that's not going to be easy either. Virginia tech away. That's going to be a tough game as well. So, so in terms of just getting ahead in the schedule, getting some momentum and, and just getting this, 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 uh fan base behind the team, that has been pretty awful for the first two home games is it, huge. I mean, it's crazy to think that fans aren't turning out given that they won 11 games two years ago and, and had a really good, exciting team last year, but they aren't turning out. And, and this is kind of the last stand to kind of state their case to the home crowd. Yeah. And, and in terms of, of Fedora and this team, I mean, as much as, as NC state is a rival, you know, Duke is the second most team. There's some recruiting battles to win with playing Duke. There's just that pride, that bell, you know, and and just performing well in front of your home crowd and, I mean, Fedora needs some mojo in, in this in this uh, program right now, and a, a big win over a division opponent is huge. I don't think I'm you know blowing people's minds by saying that, and so that yeah, that's kind of what I have to say about that. And one question for Mike though, shortly, what did you think, Mike, when you saw that uh, the bell painted with the split colors last year with the Duke and UNC down the middle that kind of blew up the internet? I guess in the fall of last year. Oh, I flipped out.
2: I mean, everybody flipped out. I mean, I, and I thought I. I saw you. I saw you retweet that back out today. I mean, I. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know whose idea that was. From what I understand, it was Bubba's idea. And you know, listen, man. From from an alumni standpoint, a, a lot of us looked at it like when we found out that it was Bubba's call. With a, with all due respect to Bubba, look, man, you're you're new to this. You're not you're not from here, and you don't have anything to do with that bell. So you need to leave it alone. And that thing's been around a lot longer than you have or we have and there's no need to change it. I mean it was it was it was a point of uh, it was a point of a lot of contention and uh, a lot of people were upset about it, yours
0: yours truly included. I don't think anybody was happy with that. I don't think Duke fans were, I don't think UNC fans were, I like think the players were I don't think anybody I mean the whole point I mean, the, the painting that bell is is a huge part of the rivalry. I, that's like the one thing that's kind what, of like was, cool about the rivalry.
2: I mean, let me not. I mean, not holding back any punches. I mean, frankly, dude, I mean, it looks soft. I mean, it was like the epitome of softness, right? And I mean, you're talking about we're going what? We're going to share the bell. We're going to show that we're what? We're we're cordial with each other as programs and schools and all. that? I mean, what not. You'd never do anything like that with basketball. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't mess with the UNC Duke basketball rivalry. I mean, that would be blasphemy in this part of the country. I mean, so why why are you using football as as the opportunity to? to to what, I guess, I, I, I don't know, clear the air, make make nice between the two programs, get lost. Like, give yeah. the bell the way it is, man.
0: And one of the coolest things, my first year covering the team, was watching them ring that bell around, uh, I guess, 2015, with Nazir Jones on the bell. William Sweet was a, was a true freshman. who hadn't even played. He was, like, spraying the bell. Ryan Switzer ringing it. I mean, it was, it's pretty cool when, they, when the other team goes and gets it. From the other team, you know when the when the clock's ticking off. I mean, it's it's a tradition that obviously other other rivalries have huge traditions, and this is kind of one that UNC has with the the bell kind of symbolizing the game. I think it's cool.
2: Yeah, it's the one trophy in all these rivalry games too. We get to rub it in the other other team's face that they lost it. I mean, the other you win the up there, in, you know, Minnesota and Michigan. You win what is that? You win like a like a leather helmet or something. You win up there or like a, something, it's it's a lumberjack, a, something. A Paul Bunyan axe. Yeah, Paul Bunyan axe or like the big milk jug or whatever. Yeah, you get to hold that up. Yeah, great. I'm holding this up. But the the Carolina Duke victory bell, you get to run over to their sideline and start spray painting that thing right in front of them. And I mean, it makes. I mean, you just have to rub their face in it, which I think is great for rivalries. I mean, if that's 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 you know how we're going to classify this.
1: Last question, Mike. Since we're on this roll, Fan sport, in Keenan Stadium. It's a chicken or the egg type thing. But as a player, a former player, yeah. what did you expect? Or, or did you even – well, you had to care. But talk about it.
2: I mean, we – from 2000 I, – I can't remember 2007 exactly. I know that we had to roll out because this is back when Keene Stadium was a horseshoe and we had the old academic center down there. And we didn't have seating. We just had the big lawn with the North Carolina logo and the little grassy patch we had back there. And we would roll out temporary bleachers. I remember we did this for the Miami game when we played Miami in 07. We beat them here. For a few other games, we rolled out those temporary bleachers because there wasn't enough seating. I can't remember if every game was, was packed like that. But I know 08, 09, and 2010, we set attendance records at the school for football because every single home game for three straight years was sold out. And it wasn't just sold out like we sold the tickets and then people didn't show up. I mean, it was sold out. There was a button almost every seat. So, I mean, it was back then 63 or however many, 65,000, 60,000, however many people sat in the stadium back before we had the Ladder Milk Center. I mean, it was 60,000-plus strong every single home game. So, coming back now and seeing half the stadium empty, I mean, it's it's disheartening. You know, and I don't know if that's because there isn't enough Excitement being generated around the program by the current coaching staff. You know, I talk about Butch Davis a lot. He did a lot of good things here. Um, One of the good things that he did was he was really big on fan engagement and generating buzz for the program. And him going out himself and generating buzz around town and on campus with megaphones and all kinds of stuff to get people in that stadium, and it worked. We were also loaded with NFL talent, which helped too. But I mean, that those teams were as exciting. I mean, I. Frankly, I think the Mitch Trubisky team last year was more exciting than any of the teams that I played on. Mostly because they could drop 50 points on on anybody any week, and Mitch obviously was the number two pick in the NFL draft. So I mean, for the games last year to not be sold out, I mean, I went to the Cal game. We had a big alumni tailgate for the Cal game that Garrett Reynolds set up, and there was a group of 15 of us that walked in together, and instead of sitting where our tickets had us sitting, we just went and sat like. I think it was on the the end zone closest to the Keenan football center. Um sat on that side on our sideline like ten rows up because there was twenty five, thirty open seats right there in the bleachers where we could sit. That shouldn't be happening. Not for a season opener. I mean it's fan yeah. Fans fan support in Keenan Stadium is lacking and I I think there's I think part of the problem is there's nowhere to tailgate. I think another part of the problem is that the university seems to want to make it as difficult as possible for people to go to the game. Now they got this clear bag policy, right? So you can't. And they implemented that one week into the season, which doesn't make any sense. And then I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, what's 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 the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of uh,
1: excuses. There's,
2: yeah, there's just there's there's always there's always expectations. And those expectations for the fans I think end up the fans end up getting let down every year, you know, at some point during the season and there's just not enough excitement to fill that stadium right now and I don't understand why. I yeah. I, I think the team is better than people are giving it credit for right now. Keenan Stadium is a beautiful place to watch a football game. It's right in the middle of campus, it's not that hard to get to. Um, the school can do a better job, you know, they kinda do with stadium drive and tailgating the way they did the dean dome with the people who donated and you pay all this money and you get the prime time parking spot and in the dean dome you get to sit down by the court well that's where the students should be stadium drive is where the students should be allowed to tailgate and set up tents and get rowdy okay that'll help that that'll help the atmosphere but you know the university's in that regard putting money and donations over fan experience so uh, you know I, I I don't know
0: i have a lot of take, takes on this and i Pretty passionate about it. I mean, I think it's been pitiful recently. I think it's been pretty pitiful last year when this team was really, really good. I mean, the, the 2015 and 16 teams were super exciting. I think Fedora's offense is, is the most exciting offense that you know any you know modern UNC fan has seen in terms of their explosiveness. But I think there's so many factors in play here. First of all, I was in school at 04 to 08. And and honestly, the technology has changed so much in terms of when you can how you can view the games. Experience in your home, the size of the TVs, the fact that, I mean, when I was living in Nashville, I'd go to buddies' houses and we'd have, you know, three TV set up. So you could watch an SEC game, you could watch UNC play, and you could throw on some Big Ten game. You have all the top 25 games right there to watch. And that, honestly, that's better than going to the game because you can have your own, you know, have your own drinks, have your own food. You're not spending nearly as much money. You're with all your buddies, you're in couches. And that's a super, you know, enjoyable, pleasurable experience compared to going into the stadium. So I'm obviously UNC knows this. They've tried to create more of a family atmosphere, make it more of a full day, full weekend experience. But I don't think it's really catching on with UNC fans and UNC alumni. Multiple reasons behind this. You know, you can look at the parking. Parking's horrible. Tailgating's horrible. They're making some changes with tailgating, which I think is a good sign. They're opening up more tailgating areas. I agree they should shut down Stadium Drive, but I think there's some safety issues with that. terms of how emergency vehicles can get in but yeah i mean there's there's let me see what what other things there's in terms of the stadium i think um the blue zone you know kind of looks bad you you kind of increase the seating there but that's never going to be full because all the families are inside so that kind of makes the whole stadium look weaker in terms of, of the attendance i think in terms of how butch rallied the troops of what mike just talked about i think I think none of this is to put on to blame on Fedora in terms of what he's put on the field. I think he obviously has been very encouraging to fan support, and and he's doing all all he can do in terms of winning, which obviously helps attendance. But yeah, you got to go into fraternity houses. You got to go into fraternity houses. Go into sorority houses. There needs to be more students there, more students early. There's just got to be more hype around this program because you know you you lose a couple games, the fans stop coming, and then it's win is basketball season, and that's just horrible. Because I mean, I think. The atmosphere around an awesome UNC game when they're winning and, and, you know, it's it's a packed crowd is so different because ever since I've covered this team, you get there at noon, you know, I'm talking recruits around 1130 taking pictures and the stadium is 15% full. And it's just kind of embarrassing looking around. You've got recruits, you've got five star, four star recruits on official visits and the stadium is just sparsely packed and it's just awful. I mean, and like you said, uh, Tommy, it's the chicken and the egg. I mean. When recruits see the lack of attendance during home games, and then they go to Clemson or even State or Virginia Tech—you know, teams that UNC recruits against—any SEC school, Tennessee, which is a big team that UNC recruits against—and they compare what they see at those schools that I just named, and they see what Keen Stadium looks like for game days. It is, you know, night and day, and it's 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 embarrassing when you when you have a, a big time recruit here, and they 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 see that, and they go to Virginia Tech and see what Virginia Tech has. Maybe a no-brainer if that was important to me, fan support and, and and playing in a in the atmosphere. And I could talk for days about how to kind of fix it. You know, I touched on some things, but it's just difficult in this day and age with so many other things going on. Kids' soccer games, you got the beach, you got the mountains, you got the, the trouble of getting to Chapel Hill and kind of you know making it an experience and, and weighing costs and benefits there. It's just a, it's a tough to do when you haven't have that built in. You know, it's it's not Alabama, it's not Clemson, it's it's not that built-in Ole Miss kind of fan base where it's a it's established tailgating identity that is so attractive. It's it's not that, and so it's just really tough. And I I I don't blame the coaching staff or administrators. I just think it's just a tough thing that they have to figure out. I think it starts with winning and continually, you know, winning consistently, and that's going to take three to four seasons of putting up eight, nine, ten wins and building that kind of culture change. And that's kind of what's going to have to happen and go from there.
1: Yeah, I think what you said there to end is the way it changes because uh, it is a tough sled to pull up that hill for North Carolina. I know a group that's been going since 1966 and hasn't missed more than a handful of games no matter what. And Lord knows there's some bad football in between there. Folks, uh, the podcast that Mike has referenced will be tomorrow with him and John Siegley and E.J. Wilson should be a good one. Today's show is about to be done, so check that out tomorrow. Ross, Mike, appreciate you joining me. All right, see you, Tommy. Thanks, Tom.
0: Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports, your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.